0: Uh, and then, church, I would invite you to open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter one. Leviticus chapter one. Leviticus is where Bible reading plans go to die. And, <laughs> uh, thank you, everybody who said no. Yes. Okay. That's good. That's good, right? We uh, we we get committed to it, right? It's the first of the year. We're reading through Genesis and we're like, look at God's creation. Look at him setting aside a special people. Look at him calling Abraham. And then we get into Exodus and we say, look at how he performed all of the plagues. He called Moses. He was in the burning bush. They got to the Red Sea. He split open the sea. They walked across. Then they went up to the mountain. They got the law. It was an amazing thing. And then we get to Leviticus. And our motivation starts to wane a little bit. We get to all of this complicated language about blood and sacrificial systems and kinds of animals that are brought forward and the kinds of things that priests are supposed to wear and it starts to become challenging for us to engage with it. Uh, It's interesting, and you might be surprised to learn this, but when, uh, when Jewish children were trained up to know the word, to know the law, the very first thing that they would learn wasn't the book of Genesis, it wasn't Exodus. When they came to the Torah, they started with Leviticus. Leviticus was the first thing that they dealt with, the first thing that they learned, and those who memorized it, it was the first thing that they memorized. So, um, to us... It feels a bit like uh, a priestly tech manual. Uh, there's a, I'm just going to help you understand a bit of how I have learned uh Uh, A lot of what has gone into Leviticus. There's this uh, organization called the Bible Project. If you have a chance to look it up, the Bible Project is amazing. Go to thebibleproject.com. They have incredible resources on Leviticus. Uh, It has helped me a lot as I have been preparing. I would encourage you to go there. But uh, yeah, Tim Mackey, the guy who runs the Bible Project, he has basically said, hey, this feels like a priestly tech manual. You know, as we come to it, we see all of these instructions and we we don't totally understand. And, And here's the thing. We live in a world where we do not have Levitical priests. We don't sacrifice animals, amen? We're in the new covenant, right? We don't have a tabernacle, right? The tabernacle is now in us, right? So in many ways, Leviticus and reading Leviticus can feel a little bit pointless, so, like, this uh, this reminds me of the coronation of King Charles, which happened just a few weeks ago. Uh, everything that happened in the coronation of King Charles is part of a tradition that is rich with meaning. And every person who watched, not every person, that might be a little extreme, let's say 95% of the people who watched the coronation of King Charles had no idea of the kind of meaning that was invested into the actions that they took. You have highly technical instructions for how uh, the, 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 the monarchy was supposed to go about this, and those instructions were followed to a T because of tradition. But right now, to the majority of people, that tradition feels pointless because the tradition is actually rich with Christian meaning, and Christianity means nothing to the vast majority of British folk. So, the action in many ways felt pointless, feels pointless, because we can't relate to the richness of the actions. It's just something that keeps in line with a thousand year old tradition. And so, while Leviticus can feel very unrelatable to us, I want you to know an Israelite who lived in this time would have instantly related the richness found in the meaning of these highly technical instructions to them this was not pointless to them it was rich with meaning and so I want to help us grasp their circumstances and their reality so that we might be able to see the richness that is there so uh, Leviticus comes to us and it is right in the middle of the Torah the Torah is the first five books of the Bible now the word Torah has an interesting meaning Uh, we we think oh that's just like law right because that is that is the Jewish word for law but actually quite literally we think of laws in terms of rules right things that you do do this don't do this but for them the Torah was not simply do this don't do this the Torah for them was training It was something meant to develop them. In fact, if we think of the whole story of the Torah, it really is God's word of training people for relationship with him. That's how they understood this this series of books. So the words themselves train. But then like the actions that the words command you to take. Also train and develop your understanding of who God is. And so Leviticus is in the middle of the Torah. What that means for Jewish people is that it is the most important thing. We typically think that you either put the most important thing at the beginning or the end, but for Jewish people, you put the most important thing right in the middle. And Leviticus is right in the middle. So for the Hebrews, this is the most important part of what God had to teach. Leviticus did not simply provide sacrifices and the process by which you make those sacrifices for Israel to maintain their relationship with God, it gave them repeated practices that were intended to train them in their understanding of who their God, Yahweh, is. So here's the other thing I want you to know about the Torah. The Torah is presented to us primarily as story. The Torah is presented us to us primarily as story, so yes, you have law in the Torah, do this, don't do this, and yes, there is poetry in the Torah, but if you look at the whole of the entire thing, it is a narrative that has a beginning and follows a progression to the end, and so... The implication of that for us is that Leviticus is actually far more than technical instruction. It is the continuation of a story that trains God's people for relationship with him. Okay, so let's talk about the story then because we kind of need to retell the story to understand how we find ourselves here. So uh, in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, God creates uh, the heavens and the earth and he creates humanity for relationship with him. So what we have is a picture of human beings with God in Eden and things are very good. But humanity rejects that. Right. We uh, chose corruption, we chose rebellion, we said, uh, we think we know better than you do, God, so we're going to go our own way. So then sin and corruption enter into the world, and then something interesting happens. God says, if you, you know, don't obey me, if you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. The implication is, like, kind of spiritual death, but also physical death enters in. And the next thing that he does is he sends them out of Eden. So I don't know if you remember last week, but Pastor Don was up here and he was talking about grief, how uh, grief affects us and the reality of loss. And actually, he, he said to us, all loss points us back to that original loss, the loss of Eden, the loss where we were in relationship with our creator, where wholeness was experienced. And so God casts his uh, people, casts the people that he made out of Eden, and then he says, uh, if you read in the story, it says that he put two cherubim there, two heavenly beings there who had flaming swords. The idea is, if you want to get back there, you're not going to do it without dying. Like, the only way, like, if you try to get back where God is, you will die. That's the implication, right? So, then you have this whole story. So, so humanity is without Eden. They've lost it. But then God uh, appears to Abraham and he says, hey, I have a special plan. I'm going to develop from you a nation, a great nation. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so this is God's special people that's going to come through Abraham. And then you read more of Abraham's story, and eventually God's people end up in Egypt. They have a special land that is being promised to them, but they're not in that land. And so God comes to Moses. He says, hey, I have a rescue plan to get my people out of Egypt. They're in slavery. They've been crying out to me. They want to be set free, and I am coming to set them free. So God comes and rescues and he sends plagues and he gives them protection and then you see him uh, go with his people in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire leading them out of Egypt splitting apart the Red Sea and he has done something significant for his special people. He takes them to Mount Sinai where they receive God's law. And 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 all of this instruction about how they are to have relationship with God. And there's even like this idea of like a tabernacle promise. Hey, I'm going to go with you, right? I'm going to set up my presence in and among you. I will be in the tabernacle, the tent, with you. And so all of this, this really good stuff happens, right? And the Israelites are at the base of the mountain where Moses went up to receive God's instruction. And you know, one of those commands that God gave initially that everybody understood exactly what he meant, he said, you shall not create a graven image, right? You you are not going to assign to a piece of material that I created the responsibility of protecting you. I protect you. That piece of material does not protect you. It does not do anything for you. But those people, when Moses went up, he was gone for a long time, 40 days. You know, I imagine them day 10 getting a little antsy. What are we gonna do? Moses is gone. do not He could have died up there. God could have killed him, right? We're frightened of this guy. You know what we should do? Now, by the way, God was giving them food, was giving them drink, was providing for them this whole time. They had everything that they needed. In the middle of the desert, they would wake up in the morning and food was on the ground. They could eat it and put it in their mouths and find sustenance. But on day 10, even though God is feeding them every single day, they go, oh, we're, we're really worried. We don't know if God is still with us. You know what we should do? We should make an image, an image of a bull. So so they all had all of this gold that they brought with them from Egypt and they all threw it into a pot, they burned it up, they put it into a a mold and Aaron, the priest, led them through this process and it's funny, if you read how Aaron responds to this, he kind of, Moses comes down and he is angry with how they have disobeyed God because they have utterly disrespected him in this incredible way. Moses comes and says to Aaron, what happened? And Aaron goes, I don't know man, I just put in the gold and this came out. Right, that's literally what he says. And, um, And so you see sin and corruption still a part of the story. That God says, don't do this, that relationship with me, this is what it looks like. And his people are still betraying him and still rebelling against him. So there's this whole process that the people of Israel go through and then you have instruction to Moses, this is how you're going to build the tabernacle, the place where I'm going to go. And so they build the tabernacle. They say, hey, uh, you're going to put uh, on the entrance of the tabernacle, there are going to be two sheets and on those two sheets will be pictures of heavenly beings, cherubim. And in front of those two heavenly beings will be an altar that does not stop burning. Remember the the cherubim outside the garden with the flaming swords, right? The implication, God is there, but to get through there requires death. So, uh, So they build the tabernacle. And there is this idea that somehow, because he's there in the midst of us, there is a way for us to be back with him. But then you have this interesting moment. You had that moment of the defeat with the golden calf, Israel sinned against God. You had all of this instruction given for the tabernacle. But then at the end of Exodus, we read something really interesting. Exodus 40, verse 34 and 35. And this is what prepares us for the next part of the story that we encounter in Leviticus. Exodus 40, 34 and 35, it says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, this is a celebratory event. It means God has taken up residence among us. He's kept his promise, but verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we, uh, a few months ago, back when we were talking about Advent, we talked a lot about God's glory. I just want to give us a working definition for God's glory. God's glory is the substance of his significance over and above all things. It's the thing that you can see and feel and touch. And yes, it is made up of other things, but like in this moment, what we see is something substantive, substantive taking up residence in the tabernacle. You could see it, It glows. You could uh, perhaps even feel the gravity of it as you drew near to the tabernacle. The implication, though, that we have here is that Moses, the the glory is so intense that if Moses steps in, he'll die. Like if Moses or any human were to go in right now, he would be crushed because God's glory is weight and he would be burned up because God's glory is light. He would die in God's glory presence. Now this is connected and we can't see this as disconnected from how Israel sinned at the base of the mountain, how they worshiped a false idol and God is saying, I cannot coexist with sin. Church, God is devastatingly holy. He is devastatingly holy. God will not exist in the same place where corruption is present. Yes, he is good, but he is terrifying as well, and the Israelites, they know this, right? They witnessed it at Mount Sinai when God set a boundary around the mountain and says, try crossing the boundary and see what happens, right? They expressed it in the voice of of God, when they heard God instruct them with the law and speak it to them, they told Moses, hey man, he can't talk to us anymore. It's frightening. We need you to go up there and listen to him because it terrifies us when he speaks to us. You go listen and tell us what he says. We can't stand to hear his voice. They know that he is terrifying. He's terrifying. And here's what just happened. The one who guides them and the pillar of cloud and fire, he filled up the tent. He kept his promise. He's going to go with them. This is the place where he plans to meet with them. And I imagine if you're standing outside the tent, you see the glow inside the tent. And at this point, not one person is able to go in, which has significant implications. It's almost like, yes, he's kept his promise, but what hope do we have? If not even Moses can go in, what hope do we have? So God has made himself for us, but to, and in order to be with him, but at this point in the story, not even Moses can be with him where he is, and that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of Leviticus. So Leviticus chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says this, the Lord called. Just so you know, the word Leviticus, we get it from these first three words. It's in the Greek that we get this. Uh, the, the, this passage was originally written in Hebrew, but in both of these, the title given for this book is, and he called. And he called. The implication means that God is inside the tent, God's people are outside the tent, and he's calling to them from inside the tent and giving instruction. He called Moses and spoke to him from inside the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Okay, so God is inside the tent, Moses is outside, and he says, When you bring an offering, now the word offering is very interesting, It would have made sense to them it makes less sense to us so here's what offering literally means it literally means a thing to bring near God is saying when you bring near a bringing near thing then do it in this way so Israel you know what you've done you've just given yourself over to worship of a false idol Aaron, you know what you've done, the, the, the leader of all the priests. You have just facilitated the worship of a false idol. Moses, do you know what you've done? In your fury over the, what the people of Israel have done, you took the stone tablets that had been written on and you broke them in your anger. You lost control of yourself. The whole lot of you are corrupted. And God speaks to Moses from inside the tent and says, But when you bring near a bringing near thing, he's he's essentially saying, Moses, proclaim this to Israel. Here's my message of hope. God's message of hope is this. I'm still providing a way for you to come near. I'm still providing a way for you to come near. Folks, this is remarkably good news. If God is as holy as he says he is, we should be greatly encouraged by the fact that he has provided a way for us to get where he is. And that's what he says to Moses. He says, let Israel know there is a way to come and be with me. When you bring near, a thing for bringing near. And once again, God shows himself to be merciful. So, That that statement right there actually sets up the entire book of Leviticus. Now he's going to go and talk about the different kinds of bringing near things, the different kinds of offerings that you can bring. So verse 3, he says, if his bringing near thing, if, if his offering is a burnt offering. So this is the first type of offering that you can bring near. The burnt offering, the word burnt offering, it literally means it goes up. It's meant to make us think of smoke, right? So yes, there's fire on the altar. Yes, the burnt offering is being burnt on the altar. But what our attention is being drawn to is the smoke because the smoke is rising up into the air, which while, yes, God is with them, they're looking at the smoke and thinking of the smoke as going up to where God is. It is symbolic to them that this thing, as it burns, goes up to God. So what is this offering that goes up and how does it help the Israelite draw near to God? Well, the instruction goes a little bit further. When you bring your bringing near thing, a burnt offering, bring it from the herd. He shall offer a male without blemish. You know, uh, as we make our way through this training of God's people, uh, there are several ideas that are going to get repeated again and again and again, and whenever something is repeated in what is the most significant book for the people of Israel, you should probably pay attention because it's trying to train them in something about God's character. This is one of those things that gets repeated, this idea of being without blemish without blemish is the hebrew word and i I don't love to talk about hebrew and greek words but this one is significant without blemish is the hebrew word to me it means having a quality of wholeness or integrity so when this speaks of animals it's speaking of physical qualities of the animal all of the limbs need to be intact you can't have any broken legs it could not have any sores on it it couldn't be blind it needed to be a perfect specimen. If we could get that back up there, is that, do we have having a quality of wholeness or integrity up there? Yes, let's leave that up there for just a little bit. So it's having a quality of wholeness or integrity. So that's, that's in relation to animals though, right? So this is, when, when it says it, it needs to be without blemish, he's saying, this is, this is the kind of thing that you're going to bring to me when you draw near. It's interesting though that this word, this Hebrew word that we're talking about is not first used in relationship to animals. It's used in relationship to a person. In the book of Genesis, it speaks to us about Noah. It's the first time this word is used in the entire Torah. Verse nine of Genesis chapter six says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, if you read just a little bit earlier than this, you will see that Noah's generation was corrupted. Noah was a righteous man, right? Noah, God looked at him and regarded him as having a quality of wholeness. What demonstrates that? Well, he walked with God, right? He trusted God. When God spoke, Noah had the faith to do what God did, when the entirety of his generation at the same time was abusing and maligning creation and humanity. So this is tamim. This is is what it means to be blameless. Psalm 15, 1 and 2 talks to us about this quality and connects it to the tabernacle. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn into your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly. He who walks with a quality of wholeness and integrity and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Here David, the author of this psalm, is applying the concept of blamelessness and saying that the quality of wholeness is what gains a person the right to be in God's presence with him where he is. So I have a question for you to see if you're following Did the Israelites who were first receiving this instruction display a clear quality of wholeness or integrity? No, absolutely not. So what are they doing? God is saying, bring an animal that does display a quality of wholeness and integrity. And that animal will go up in smoke, where God is, and accomplish something. So, what will it accomplish? He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's the person who is bringing the offering. Shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. So the person who brings the offering is going to be accepted. Let's talk really briefly about why acceptance matters for the Israelite. Because Yahweh, the one who is with them, Yahweh fights battles for them against opposing armies. Yahweh feeds them day in and day out. Yahweh guides them through the desert. Yahweh preserves their life. If Yahweh does not accept them, they are in serious trouble. Everything falls apart. Their life, their hope, their everything is dependent on Yahweh being with them. So Israel approaches him on his terms that they might continue to find acceptance with him so that they can receive his favor. So what's going to happen is that the innocent spotless animal is going to burn and go up to heaven in order that those who offer it might be accepted. So just take take a step back, like, let's ask a few things. You might, number one, be inclined to ask the question, well, why doesn't God accept me just as I am? Well, we've talked about this. God is devastatingly holy. They knew this. They would not ask this question, Right? They knew that God would not accept sin into his presence. God is just and will deal justly with human rebellion. He will deal justly with our willful choice to do things on our terms. So what he's doing is he is providing them the terms of approach, the terms of relationship. And so this is answering for us a core fundamental question human question which we probably should spend some time on why does God's acceptance matter why is it important we've talked about why it matters for the Israelites that they're toast if he doesn't accept them right but there's something deeper than just that Saint Augustine said this he said "Um, you have made us for yourself O Lord and our hearts are restless until they rest in you the one who created you to find wholeness and relationship with him, he created you so that you might give yourself to him. Our hearts are made to be given to a God who is worthy of everything that we might possibly have to give, but we have chosen to give our hearts to other things. The problem is that other things are not good or pure or holy enough to sustain our worship. They end up crushing us when we give ourselves to them. They make us addicts, They, uh, trying to find fullness in a pill, or in a drink, or entertainment, or in the next big win that we might have, or in the next short-term relationship that we might have, but they're never really getting full enough, right? They keep us coming back to them and being unsatisfied. These other things that we give ourselves to, they make us lash out at others. They make us selfish. They make us experience shame or they make us experience a sense of self-righteousness. The point is they turn us inward on ourselves to become something less than what we were created to be. They corrupt us. And so because we've given them a place in our hearts that God actually made for himself and because only he is good enough to deserve that place, and only when we give ourselves to him can life be rightly ordered because of all of that acceptance by God matters deeply, right, that we would have some way, this is what he created us for, it is crucial to the health of our souls that we find some way to be accepted by him. Because we were made in such a way that real peace and joy and wholeness that the Bible says lasts forever, they're only found when our hearts are actually given to him. And he is the only one who can actually do a good job of shepherding our hearts. Okay, so that's acceptance, acceptance with God, why it's significant. So let's go back to Leviticus then. How does the Israelite who comes near to God find acceptance? Verse four he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So here the person who brings the offering, they lay their hands on the offering. In the ancient Israelite context, this was a way of simply setting something apart for a special purpose. So the special purpose of this spotless animal from the herd or flock has, is to be an atonement. Right? You should read that word as at one Because the implication is that this animal is going to take two things that are at odds with each other and bring them into unity with each other. That this animal is going to make atonement. That it's going to reconcile together things that have been separated. And make it so that they can be one. So we're not going to talk much about atonement today because guess what? Atonement's going to keep coming up as we work our way through Leviticus. But God is essentially saying to Israel, hey, we're at odds now, but I'm making a way for us to dwell together in unity. So verse 5, then he, the person who has brought the offering, shall kill the bull that he has brought before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the side of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Verse 6, then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Now, if you keep reading, there's further instruction about what the priests, the sons of Aaron, are supposed to do and what the person who is bringing the offering are supposed to do, and they both have actions to take. They both are participating in uh, essentially butchering this animal and placing it on the altar. But I want you to take note of three things with me. Remember, all of these things that are written, all of the actions that they're taking, as they either observe the actions happening or as they take the actions themselves, they're all meant to train these people in something. So there are three things I want us to take note of. First, that the person who is bringing the offering is actively involved in the process of the sacrifice. That it's actually the one who brings the offering that kills the animal. Right? They work together with the sons of Aaron, who are the priests in this circumstance. That's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing I want you to notice is that the blood purifies the altar for the burning that is about to happen. Right? so Just so you understand what's going on and how the Israelite would have understood this, the altar is outside of the tabernacle right? So the inside of the tabernacle is the place where God dwells. That's the place that he has made his living room, so to speak. The altar is out here with us in the midst of our sin and corruption and death, right? So God's in there. We are out there. The altar is in a place where it is constantly getting polluted by death and by sin, and so what they say what God says is that you need to take some blood from the sacrifice that has come and you're going to sprinkle that blood against the altar. You're actually going to throw it against the sides of the altar. And the implication is that as you throw the blood against the altar, it purifies the altar. And this is another theme that is going to keep coming up. Leviticus 17.11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So what every Israelite understood when they saw blood is that even though the thing has died, the life of the thing that has died is still present in the blood, So even though it's been killed, the blood is there, and therefore there is still life there because it's inside of the blood. So to draw near to God, here's what I do. I kill my innocent, spotless animal who did nothing to deserve the circumstance that it's in right now. And what the priest does is that after I kill the innocent spotless animal, it takes the blood of that animal and sprinkles it on the altar so that the life of the innocent spotless thing is sprinkled in order to purify the altar, making it a clean altar so that it can be used after being polluted in this world that has been corrupted by sin and death. Right. So here's what the Israelite was learning. The life of the innocent thing purifies the corruption of sin and death. They learned this message time and time and time again. There are things that have been polluted by sin and death, and the life of the innocent thing cleanses them. So that was the second thing I wanted you to take note of. The third thing I wanted you to take note of is to remember with me that it goes up. That burnt offering is referencing smoke. In a similar way to the blood, when an Israelite would watch the smoke of the burning thing go up into the air, their experience was this. They're thinking, this innocent animal is now going up into God's presence so that it can go to God and plead atonement for me, so that God will accept me. Okay, so there's one more thing I want you to notice. All of this was a way for the Israelites to find reconciliation with their God. It says, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. What you need to know about these people is that their livelihood is not tied up in cash or bank accounts. Their livelihood is tied up in their flocks and in their herds and in their crops. And to bring an animal that does not have blemish is incredibly costly. It is a significant portion of your livelihood. And if you keep reading, you can see that not everybody even has herds or flocks. That there is provision made for those who didn't have these animals. That you could have a turtle dove or you could have a pigeon. But the point is, everyone who brings this kind of an offering, it costs you significantly. But here's the other thing. With most sacrifices, what would happen is that you would bring your sacrifice and that part of your sacrifice would go to Yahweh, but that you would actually get to keep part of the sacrifice that you bring. You'd get to take it home with you. That's not the case with the burnt offering. Every single piece of that offering is burnt up on the altar. It goes up to God. Imagine someone walking in here with a briefcase full of $15,000 in cash and setting it on the table and lighting it on fire. What would you feel what would you experience as you watch that person light that type, that, that weight of a livelihood on fire? I bet you there's more than a few of us that would go, no, right? Like think of what that could be used for. Don't do that. But this is what they all witnessed when they saw people bringing their offering and it happened at the beginning and the ending of every single day. People taking the entirety of a significant portion of their livelihood, killing it, having its blood sprinkled, and burning up the entire thing to make atonement between them and God. Okay, so what does this have to do with us? Because if you haven't noticed, I'm not holding a knife, and you all didn't bring animals here. So, Um, yeah, thank you, Jesus. That's right. Amen. The reason I'm not holding a knife is because Christ is the fulfillment of these things which God was teaching his people about. The first way is this, that God calls for an innocent and blameless offering. In 1 Peter 1.19, it tells us that we were purchased by the blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus gave all of himself as an innocent offering to God to make it possible for us and God to be at one so that now through faith in Jesus, we can find acceptance with God. So in both Old and New Testaments, God has made a way for people to be with him. He's telling us, he's showing us that he wants relationship with us. But I want you to take note of something. The burnt offering also shows us how much God cares about our heart and devotion. It tells us that he does not want us in halfway. He does not want us in part of the way. He doesn't want us claiming to follow him, but giving ourselves to something else. He wants every part of us. Even in the Old Testament, Malachi 1:13 and 14, verse 13 says this, But you say... What a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick and this you bring as your offering. God's saying, he's speaking of the nature of the kinds of offerings that they bring when they bring their burnt offerings. He's saying, you have not allowed your heart to be fully devoted to me. You've taken the weakest among your flock. You've not taken the best that you've had to give, and you bring it to me. He says, shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who is a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The burnt offering was a way for the Israelite to say, God, I value you more than anything else. God, I trust that if I give you everything now, that you will give me what I need for tomorrow. So when people offered it as a religious action, but without true devotion to God, God detests it. He says, I can see what you're doing. I can see that you're just pretending. And the same is true of us. Right? He has been good and merciful to us to make a way for us to come and be with him. And he did that by making Jesus the sacrifice, making Jesus the fragrant offering, but it still calls for all of our devotion. Romans 12.1. We read it this morning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God. Look at how merciful he has been to us. Present your bodies. And when it says the word bodies, you might as well just read into it your whole selves. Present your whole selves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is saying, God made you for himself. You rebelled. And sinned against him. Jesus has made a way for you. By his own blood. Out of his love for you. And Get this. He didn't do it for just part of you. Jesus wants the whole thing. Every part that you have to give. Your money. Your skills. Your time. Your family. Your career. Your relationships. For his Glory, the burnt offering teaches us something about what God wants. So may not the story of our lives simply be, I went to school, I got a job, I got married, I paid off my mortgage, I was nice to people, and then I died. May it be, Jesus died for me. And now everything I have is for him. So what? Give God the thing he has always wanted the whole time. What does God want more than anything? These sacrifices were not about the sacrifice themselves. The blood of bulls and goats has no power to save. So listen to this. Throughout the Old Testament, God repeats this message. Psalm 51, 16 and 17 says this, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. First Samuel 15.22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Isaiah 1.11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. So what has God always and ever wanted from his people? Like, let me just ask a question. What does any spouse want from their spouse? the same thing, their whole heart, their complete devotion for all of their life. The offering was only a window. It was only a training tool to help form the heart of the giver into understanding who Yahweh was. It was a window into the heart of the giver. So, so there are three kinds of people, and I, I want to talk about three kinds of people in this room today. The, the first kind of person that I want to talk about is the person who trusted in Christ a long time ago, but you know that you are not right with God because you know there are places, multitudes, or perhaps one, that you're saying, he doesn't get that. He doesn't get that part of me. And hallelujah, you do not need to offer a burnt offering this morning. <laughs> you need to commit, recommit your life to Christ. Christ. He had your heart at one time but you decided to give it to other things and it's time for you to give him all that he has wanted the whole time. Every part of you. And so if that's you this morning, if you're that first person that I described, I would encourage you do not leave this building today without finding a person who can pray for you. Find me after the service. Find Don or Debbie after the service. Find anybody who you trust in this room after the service. Have us pray with you. If you're like, I've been holding back. There's a part that I've said he can't have. The second kind of person I wanna talk to uh, uh, this morning is the person who has already devoted your life to God. If you have already devoted your life to God, he has your whole heart. Here's the great thing about the burnt offering. You could give a burnt offering anytime that you wanted. All the time, it was up there to give. You didn't just have to do it when you were recommitting to God. It was always there before you. And the encouragement to us on this side of Jesus' sacrifice is this, Hebrews 13, 15. If Jesus has all of us already, then in verse 15, through him, that is Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Your ongoing, sincere worship and service to him is your burnt offering. The third kind of person I want to talk to is the person who has never trusted in Christ. If you have never trusted him in, in Christ and given him your heart, I want to talk to you about some realities of before Jesus and after Jesus. Relationship with God and forgiveness have always been received in the same way, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, before Jesus, after Jesus. It's always been through faith. God says, here's the way. Will you go the way that I am providing? So before Jesus, it was, faith was expressed like it was in Leviticus chapter one. There was a confession of sin. There was a, willing to, a willingness to accept a substitute on your behalf who would die, who would go up to God, who would make atonement for you. And there was then what preceded your devotion to the one true God. After Christ, faith is expressed through confession of sin a willingness to accept a substitute sacrifice for sin, Jesus, and then your devotion to the one true God. Before Jesus, you know, the Israelites they did not know. They didn't have an awareness of everything that God was up to, but today we do. And this is the pathway that we're told. This is the way that we are given. Romans 10:9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If that's you, if that's you, if I have described you this morning and you have been holding back from God and you are ready to say, okay, he gets everything. Do not leave this building today without finding a person who can pray with you and help you take that step. Would you pray with me, please? Holy Spirit, I pray for these, your people. Would you bless them, those who have committed themselves to you, those who are walking day by day and trying to discover what this faith thing looks like and their spheres of influence and trying to work it out in their own lives, would I bless them to be offering up to you a sacrifice of praise this morning. You have done great things for us and we are glad. Would you lift up celebration and joy in our hearts? But I pray for the person or the people in this room who have been holding something back from you. Lord, who have known your goodness and at one time we're all in, but they've backed off. Lord, would you inspire in them conviction of their hearts of sin? And not only that, Lord, would you inspire them to take the step of dedication that you are calling them to, to recommit themselves to you? And Lord, I pray for the person who has not yet believed in you. Lord, that they would know the peace and the joy and the wholeness of what it is to be fully welcomed into relationship with you, not because of one single thing that they've done, but because of what you have accomplished to provide a way for them to come to you. Lord, would you give faith this morning? And would you be enthroned on our praises? We pray in Jesus' name.